This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. ago, I, I gave a brief history lesson. Some of y'all will remember that. It was a lesson about how our society, how our society got to where it is today. We reach back like six to seven hundred years and we trace some of the philosophical changes that have taken place. And in a nutshell, uh, we saw that what basically happened was uh, once there was a change in thought uh, about the existence of absolute truth, then the, the belief system, the theology, the, the ethics, and the morality, the morals in society, they began giving, giving way, right? And in time, what happened is that humans that began to decenter God um, uh, from life, and instead they part, started putting humanity at, at the center of life. And then another shift happened and um, the focus was placed less on humanity and more on individuals. And from there, another shift happened. And it led to a focus on not just individuals, but the feelings of individuals. And, and, and so from there, another shift happened. It became not just about the feelings of individuals, but making sure that every person has good feelings about themselves no matter what. And that's where we're at today, and, and that's all a, a really brief summary. Uh, it's a real overview of a really complex matter, but what we can say for sure is that these shifts, when taken together, they've led to a vastly different world than the one we would have encountered six or seven hundred years ago. And so, whereas many uh, see see it as the evolving of humanity or humanity's great progress. Others, they'll look at this history and they'll see the dangers of it. The problems that are a result of it. And really, you know what, if we were to just go back 60 or 70 or 80 years, and some of y'all can do that in your minds, right? Um, even just in America, if we were to go back that far, we could break down some of those changes in our own society in even more detail. You see, I don't know if you know this or not, but the church right now, at this point in time, is in the most generationally unique period it has ever been in in human history. Right? This is the case because for the very first time ever in human history, uh, congregations tend to have at least a handful of generations in them. So they're multi-generational. This is in large part because the light human lifespan has lengthened uh, over the last couple hundred years. And so what we have right now uh, is five, in, in a lot of cases, if not six generations in one building worshiping together, hearing the same message together. And so you can see up here on the screen uh, the, the generations 
the traditionalists, the baby boomers, the Xers, the Yers, or the millennials, the Zers, and now what we call Generation Alpha. And you can see which group you'll fall into there. Um, and so interestingly, each of these groups, right, if you look at each one of them, take them on their own, it has its own historical, its own cultural, its own geographical, and its own philosophical traits that give shape to it. And it's kind of interesting to think about. Let me see. Um, I don't have any of them listed there, but if you think about uh, in, in your peer groups, if you're in one of those, you'll talk more about some of these traits this week. But each of these generations has its own traits that make it up and give shape to it. And many of the problems in our churches and many of the problems in our society, believe it or not, they are generationally based more than anything. Generations not really understanding each other. Generations talking past each other. Generations talking against each other because they don't really understand each other. And I, maybe I'll talk a little bit more about that next week um, if some of it arises, but being aware of some of the generational differences can go a really long way in helping us understand each other and communicate with one another. We talk about having a generational IQ, right? Um, I was reading a book with that title this week. I'd commend it to you, titled Generational IQ. And it, and it goes through a lot of these differences. And I bring this up because as we continue to see our society and our world shift, you know what? The church is being affected dramatically. And there are larger reasons for this. And whether we want to admit it at all, folks, all of us adults, all of us, every single adult in this room this morning has played a role in that. Each previous generation, the ones listed here, whether they can muster the strength to admit it or not, has helped pave the way and set the stage for each subsequent generation's thinking and living. It's true. So it behooves us, right, to, to think about some of the trends so that we're aware, so that we can, we can take some action. I want to share this morning as I get started just a few of these trends with you. And they all come from recent studies by the Barna Group and the Pew Forum. These are a couple of um, uh, really prominent uh, groups looking at sort of faith trends in our country. Also, some of these come from uh, a couple of evangelical scholars who have been doing research on this too, but the Barna Group is, is the leading group that analyzes trends in our society, especially as it relates to faith. And so they've teamed up with the American Bible Society to assess some of these trends. Here, I want you to really just pay close attention to this this morning. First is this. In 2019, 48% of Americans, that's almost half the population, reported that they pretty much never interact with Scripture. These 48% say it has, Scripture has minimal to no influence on their lives at all. Another 9% say they interact with Scripture sporadically, but it probably still has no influence. And that's 50% of our society that thinks Scripture is irrelevant and unimportant. The other 43% of society interacts with Scripture frequently, but some find it more meaningful than others. 
And it shouldn't be surprising that, given those numbers, that 35% of adults reported never engaging Scripture even once in the year 2019. Not once. And we're seeing at the same time, right, um, we're seeing at the same time as this a pretty consistent drop in people who affirm that Scripture contains everything we know, need to know to live a meaningful life. And a lot of people strongly disagree with that statement in the polls. The same trend is true, essentially, for those who were asked whether they believe Scripture is accurate in all of the principles it teaches. 57% say no. Not really. It's a sharp decline. Woo! For those who agree, or for those who agree that this is the case. It's dropping rapidly, folks. Likewise, at present, fewer than one-third of Americans now attend church weekly. That's down one-third from just 1993. And that's across all the generations listed here. Not just the millennials, Gen, uh, Gen Z, or Gen, or Gen Alpha. That's all generations. The research has shown that folks in the south on the mainland are more likely to engage scripture than other regions in the country. That black and Hispanic communities are quite a bit more likely to engage scripture. And that women are more likely to engage scripture than men. 8% of the population find scripture difficult to understand. 6% don't really know where to start. 6% sense no excitement when reading scripture. And 4% have no sense of scripture's background. This is kind of important stuff to know. And in 2003, whereas in 2003, 50% of all women in our country, half of all women, one out of every two women in our country, they, they attended church. That was in uh, 2003. Here in 2020, only 30% of women in our country attend church weekly. One-seventh, or 15% of Americans believe that the country would actually be better off with no scripture at all. 15% of the country believes that. 30% say things wouldn't change. It would be the same if there was no scripture. One-third of the adults in this country say they're not too knowledgeable at all about scripture. 73% say they have a little bit of knowledge. I'm going to give you just a few more statistics here. 32% of Americans don't know the city Jesus was born in. 53% of those were millennials. 56% of adults could not identify in a list of four out of the Ten Commandments which one was not one of the Ten Commandments. Also, 61% of Americans believe that Scripture is oppressive to certain people groups. And that number that believes that is climbing fast. 24%, a quarter of our society, believes that churches and religious organizations do more harm than good. If we look back to the 70s and up to now, we see that in the U.S. in the 70s, 89% of American citizens used to identify as Christians. 89% in the 70s. 50 years later, 
that number is about 70%. And, and is expected in 2050 to be in the low 60s, mid to low 60s. Now I want to share with you one last thing from the Barna Group. It's this. When they polled millennials recently, see millennials, those born between 1980 and 1995, currently in the 25 to 40 range, their kids are the Gen Zers and the Gen Alphas. When they polled millennials, they found that three of the six reasons millennials are leaving the church are intellectually based. They're all thought-based. They have to do with the mind. Hear me on this. I want to drive this home this morning. Here's the first one. Millennials say that Christianity to them is too intellectually shallow and they're leaving the church because of it. Two, they said, churches seem to be against or antagonistic to science and they can't roll with that. They're anti-intellectual, so they're leaving the church because of it. And the third one, Christianity is a turnoff because it's closed-minded toward hearing perspectives of those who are different than them. These are three of the top six reasons millennials are leaving the church and taking their kids with them. And if we, we know this, now we know this, but if we know this and we just ignore it, if we stick our heads in the sand and yell la 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 la, right? If we just refuse to acknowledge it, if we refuse to listen to them, it's only going to get worse. And that's not what we want. We want to cultivate goodness and truth and beauty in their lives. We want them to know that the church is a safe place to come and think, to love God with your mind. It is a safe place to come and ask questions. It's a safe place to explore. It's a safe place to express your doubts. We want them to know, at least here at the bridge, that we're not shallow. I want them to know that. I hope you do too. And I, look, I could go on with so many more statistics, but I share these because I think it's a good sense, or it's a good to have a sense of what the numbers, and right, the numbers represent real people, but a good sense of what the numbers and thus the people are actually telling us. Because in many ways, the church is suffering and it needs revitalized. And that revitalization isn't merely just, it isn't like, just about church growth in terms of the numbers. But we want to focus on spiritual growth too. And this and more is why in my estimation the church in general, but the bridge in particular, needs a solid rooting in Scripture. And as I said last week, you know, I don't want to just be like every other congregation. I want us to be a thinking church who, because of the deep beliefs that we share and hold in common, we are able to cultivate goodness, truth, and beauty wherever we go. And so I want to raise the bar, as I keep saying. On Sunday mornings, 
I want want to guide y'all into a place of, of thoughtful worship where you are loving God with your minds. Because that is an act of worship. It is a part of the whole worship thing that we're doing on Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings aren't for evangelism. Sunday mornings are for discipleship as a church family. And we're, you know, we're working as the bridge. We're working toward more evangelism efforts. The COVID stuff has kind of slowed that down. We're hoping to do some of that with our neighbors across the street, uh, but we've been slowed down a little bit. That's fine. We'll deal with it. But the church can't afford, and you've got to hear me when I say this, right? The church can't afford to continue getting people saved and then not giving them deep roots. That's exactly what happened to my younger sister. And that's why she walked away as a millennial. To her, it's shallow. And so we can't just afford to get people baptized, dunked, and then they're done. We're good to go. And so my main role, my main role is preaching and teaching. That may be different from the role of Pastor Gordon when he was here for two decades. Right? We're different people. Have different perspectives, different talents, different gifts. And that's fine. And I appreciate that brother and what he's done. But this is my gifting. It's my calling. It's been affirmed when I sat with the district board a couple months back and they approved me for to transfer my ordination. They affirmed that calling to preach and teach. And so I'm trying on Sunday mornings to to give you new ways to think, to give you new language, new words, to provoke your mind with ideas, to get familiar with some theology and some history, to know some church history, to stoke your imaginations. And I work hard at it. I work really hard at it. Sometimes I may be up here. I try to bring it down. But I work hard at it. Because you know what? Scripture isn't simple. It isn't. Scripture's complex. That's what the statistics told us too. People don't really understand it. Scripture's complex. The message of the cross in some ways is simple, but Scripture as a whole is very complex. And part of the reason the church in this country is in the state it's in is because for too long we've boiled everything down and we've watered everything down. We've oversimplified everything and we've acted, and you know what? We've been led to believe as if faith-related things are not complex things, and they are. A lot of times they are. And so we got to own up to that. That faith can be very complex. That Scripture tends to be very complex and we got to embrace that because one of the things that we know about millennials is this they value authenticity and they have a knack for sniffing out anything that's inauthentic and rejecting it so we got to admit and be honest about the fact that faith's hard some questions are hard scriptures complex scripture can be difficult 
And we've acted over the generations as if the depth of Scripture isn't important. But it is. It's not just for theologians sitting off in some office somewhere. It's for us too. Y'all are theologians. Talk about Theology just means to talk about God. Anytime you start talking about God, you're doing theology. And so, we, we've focused, evangelicals in particular, we've tended to focus on evangelism at the expense of discipleship. Instead of holding evangelism and discipleship together and realizing that we should, we should be about evangelism that leads to a robust discipleship. And Revelation, as you know, it's one of the most difficult texts in all of Scripture. Maybe the most difficult text. Most preachers stay away from it. The ones who do work through it, they, some of them come away with the craziest ideas. And so that needs to be countered. So my thinking is, let's just go for it. Let's get into the hardest part of Scripture, and once we've made our way through it, Hey, we can pretty much do anything else. Right? So, in time, maybe we'll come back to it after we get through it, but I don't know. I, I'm, I'm for constantly being reminded that when we, when we read Revelation in a common sense way, in a consistent way, man, it's rich and life-giving. We got to put some work in to make sense of it? Yes. Peer groups are great for that, by the way. Revelation stretch us? Yes, it will. But it's worth it. Because it's one of the most neglected and abused texts and it doesn't deserve it. And I hope this morning that you'll continue mustering up some strength to stick with me on this. It's important. And as we approach the text for this morning, I've done this before, but I want to give another quick overview of where we've started and where we're headed. And we're going to jump to Revelation 12 for just a few minutes. All right, so look, there are lots of ways to outline Revelation. And I've given you some clues in your symbol guide there. Um, the 12 visions, the four location switches. Um, but here's another way to think about it. I, I've been thinking hard about this this week. Okay? Revelation, it's all about this bridegroom, this groom, Jesus, and his bride, the church. And so here's, here's kind of one way I offer to you this morning to think about Revelation as a whole. All right, so Revelation 1 is kind of like Jesus' dating app profile, right? I've never used the dating app, but I've heard people talk about them, and I kind of get the idea, right? So Revelation 1, it, it offers Jesus' profile. It's his description of who he is. And he, he, at this stage, has posted about himself in chapter 1 of Revelation that he's looking for a bride. He's going to have all these descriptions of himself. And so Revelation 2 to 3, it's the church's profile. It's a description of the bride. And so she, too, was looking for a mate. And so chapter 1, um, chapter 1 is, here, here's your bridegroom and his qualities, and then chapters 2 and 3, here's your bride and her qualities. And so they've like swiped to select each other, right? Um, they're going to meet up. And in Revelation 4 to 7, it can be seen as a sort of engagement stage. Here, the bridegroom, he's described as this lamb. 
And the, we talk here about these seven seals, and they represent, the sealing represents the solidifying of the relationship. And then in Revelation 8 to 11, we, we learn that for their wedding to actually and eventually take place, this lamb, the bridegroom, he's got to have his blood shed. He's got to have his blood atoned. He's got to make atonement, and that will allow the wedding to take place. Okay, that would be odd to add to a dating app profile, but it is what it is. And so the spirit, he's acting in the role of a priest, and he comes out of this temple, and he signals, eventually, the end of the lamb's sacrifice. He signals for these seven trumpets to blow, which indicate, with that seventh one, that it's complete. But each time, as we remember, that this trumpet blows, Satan, he's trying to interrupt. Satan is like the jealous guy who got rejected, right? He was trying to swipe and get connected, but he got rejected by the church. And so he starts to create turmoil in the relationship between Jesus and the bride. And so in Revelation 11, the seventh trumpet blows, signaling the completion of the atonement. And in Revelation 12, there's a sort of flashback to the bridegroom's birth. And it marks the beginning of these birth pains of a new creation taking place. Satan, he keeps trying to interrupt though. When, that final, when the atonement finalizes, Jesus is realized as the only eligible groom. Satan knows this. And that he, he knows that he has hardly any time left. And so he intends to intensify the interruptions and wreak havoc. And that's what Revelation 13 to 14 is about. And then in Revelation 15 to 18, we encounter these seven bowls or the seven vials of wrath. That is the seventh bowls or vials of God's absence or separation. And it's beginning the process, you see, of God separating himself from those who have first separated themselves from him and rejected him. Because that's what they want. And then in Revelation 19 to 22, Jesus, the, Jesus and the bridegroom are at the wedding. And they enjoy this big post-wedding feast in a sort of renewed Garden of Eden. It's not really Eden restored, but it's like this Eden made newer and better. And so Revelation, it's all about Christ pursuing his desired bride. And it's this beautiful story, it really is. It's kind of like an ancient rom-com, you know, ancient romantic comedy. But this stuff is really important to know. And so as we turn to Revelation 12, 7 to 18 this morning, we'll remember that Revelation 12 is this sort of pivot chapter. And we got to keep in mind that Christ's finished atonement has initiated these birth pains at the start of a new creation. And we can't afford to miss that. And so as we read this morning, there are three items that I want you to keep an eye out for. One, the connections back to Genesis. Two, the appearance of Michael, the archangel. And three, the reference uh, where Jesus calls us his siblings. And so with that in mind, I want to read this morning. It says this, And a great battle occurred in the sky. Michael and his messengers battled with the dragon. And the dragon battled and his messengers. And neither was he strong enough, nor did he find a place for them yet in the sky. And he was thrown, the great dragon, the ancient snake, the one called devil and Satan, the one deceiving the whole inhabited world. He was thrown onto the land and his messengers were thrown with him. 
And I heard a loud voice in the sky saying, Now it has occurred. The salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of His anointed one because He was thrown down, the accuser of our siblings, the one accusing, there it is right there, the accuser of our siblings, the one accusing them before the throne of our God day and night. Sounds a little bit like Job. And they themselves, the siblings, overcame him, the dragon, on account of the blood of the lamb and on account of the word of their testimony. And they didn't love their souls up to death. Because of this, y'all rejoice, the skies and the, those tinting in them. Woe to the land and the sea because the devil has gone down before you having great anger, seeing that he has little time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown onto the land, he pursued the woman who bore the male. And two wings of a great eagle were given to the woman. We talked last week about that being Eve as a, a type of Mary. In order to fly into the wilderness into her place where she would be nourished there for a time and times and a half a time from the presence of the snake. And the snake shot water. This is crazy. And the snake shot water as a river out of his mouth from behind the woman in order that he might make her be swept away. And the land helped the woman. And the land opened its mouth and drank the river that the dragon shot from his mouth. <laughs> and the dragon was wrathful toward the woman and approached to make battle with those remaining of her seed, that is, believers, her children, of those keeping the commands of God and having the testimony of Jesus. And I stood upon the sands of the sea. This is a crazy story. It sounds pretty fantastical. But first things first. Let's notice uh, the connections back to Genesis 1-4. to In particular, right, we see that reference to Satan as a snake. And there's also enmity, strife, discord between the snake and Eve's offspring. And as we move down to Revelation 12, 16, there's another connection, and it's to the Cain and Abel story. There's a scholar by the name of Paul Minear, and he points out that in both Genesis 4 and Revelation 12, in both places, the mouth of the earth opens up its mouth and it drinks. And so in Abel's story, the earth opens its mouth and it swallows up Abel's blood, it drinks Abel's blood, it drinks the flood of the serpent's mouth here in Revelation 12. And in the former instance, the Abel story, this blood of Abel, it's because of the murder, contaminates the land. But in Revelation 12, it protects the woman and provides for her. And likewise, the serpent's mouth, from the serpent's mouth comes rivers of deceit in Genesis the same mouth that deceived, early on, deceived Eve early on. And here, uh, the same mouth opens up and shoots this deceit or this water out trying to uh, harm her. And so it's very easy to miss this connection back to Genesis, this first instance of fratricide, right? Brothers killing brothers. But here's Satan. He... You know what, Mormons, by the way, this is kind of interesting. Mormons, I don't know if you knew this, but Mormons believe that Jesus and Satan are brothers. 
kind of a, a very interesting belief. They believe that they're brothers. We don't, we don't hold that perspective uh, in Orthodox Christianity, but Google it if you want, want to read up about it. But Satan, he's trying to kill Jesus' brothers. That is, us. <laughs> but instead of killing for his brother or killing anyone, Jesus is willing to die for his brothers. So there are some connections here that remind us that Revelation 12 is rooted in the early pages of Genesis, the story of creation that's now moving forward to new creation. Let's go to the second thing about Michael, the archangel. I don't want to linger too long here, but just enough to make the point that Michael, like that woman clothed in the sun, from my perspective, is a type. Right Last week, I talked about typology and how one figure from the past can be represented in a new figure in new ways. Their traits from before are brought forward, but there's also some difference. So Eve was this woman, but she's a type for Mary, who is her antitype. I think that something similar might be happening with Michael here. And the ancient archangel Michael, uh, he stood as this, this figure of battle and a protector of the Jews. And I think that maybe he's a type of the Holy Spirit, who's his antitype in Revelation. So the Spirit, he takes on some of Michael's identity as a protector and battler. He's a giver of winged help too, the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit is not Michael. Um, he's the antitype of Michael. So John, I think, is doing something typological here again. So that he can frame the verses in a very Trinitarian way. Others, by the way, the Seventh-day Adventists, they believe that, that Michael actually is Jesus. And some people believe that when Jesus was crucified and died, he descended, but then when he was raised, he actually turned into Michael. Right? So some really interesting perspectives out there. Um, others, others really disagree with that kind of perspective. But here's the third point. This is where Jesus refers to us as his siblings. And he says that Satan is the accuser. He's, he's talking to John or the Spirit, the accuser of our siblings. But it's easy to miss this. And I want to draw attention to this just for a minute because you know what? We often, and rightly so, refer to Jesus as Lord. We often refer to Jesus as Savior. Jesus as God. But rarely is anybody ever talking about Jesus as brother. That one gets sort of short shrift. We, we just push it off to the side. It gets ignored. But there are other passages in the Bible that are scripture that remind us of this. In Hebrews and in Mark, we read of these things. It's a powerful thing to, to think about Jesus as our brother. The majority of my time this week as I was preparing was spent on this. How is Jesus our brother? And how have we overlooked this for so long? Like, What does it mean that Jesus is our brother? Like, Why do we not give that more attention to that? It's a very Jewish idea rooted in the Old Testament. If we go back to Deuteronomy 17.20, we read that the king, he's not to exalt himself above his brothers. And there's a scholar named Gerhard Lofink, 
And he says this, he says, The king is an Israelite like all the rest, a brother within the whole people of brothers and sisters. He says the Torah shows that Israel is meant to be a people of sisters and brothers. And if there's a king in it at all, he can only be a brother among siblings. And so just as Hebrews 2.17 points out, Jesus is our priest brother. Listen to what Hebrews says. He says, it was essential that Jesus, that, that Jesus be made like all the brothers. Why? In order that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest for them before God in order to atone for the sins of their people. And I was thinking about that this week, and it just blew my mind. In 21 years of being a Christian, I've hardly ever given much thought to the idea of Jesus as my brother. He's my high priest brother. I was thinking, this is, this is worth exploring more. And I think, you know, we Americans, we often tend to shy away from the idea of Jesus as our brother and focus on the Lord aspect. Because maybe we feel a little guilty, I don't know. Maybe we think he deserves more. But from his own lips, Jesus' own lips, he recognizes us as his siblings. And so we need to embrace that. What does it mean? Well, there are a lot of nuances to brotherhood and, and siblingship in antiquity. But what we really, what's really neat is that at, at this point in time in history, right now, our African brothers and sisters, the African theologians, they're the ones who are actually doing a great job of recovering this concept of Jesus' brother. They're drawing a lot of attention to it. And part of the reason for this is because in many African cultures, much attention is given to the eldest or oldest brother. But in general, some scholars have noted about seven points that square with what Scripture has to say about the notion of brotherhood. Look at them here. The oldest brother, Jesus, our older brother, deserves respect from his younger siblings. He's an example for his younger siblings. He has special inheritance rights, first fruits thing. He mediates between his father and his younger siblings by being their spokesperson. He's responsible for younger siblings by both caring for them and disciplining them. He's the confidant of the father and the second in command of the family and often has both a priestly and political leader role in the family. That's worth recovering. This is rich stuff. And we need to listen to our African brothers and sisters, siblings on this. And so, um, here's our word of the week. It kind of goes along with this divine filiation. I just learned this word this week. I'd never heard of it. It means because we're siblings of Jesus, we're adopted as God's children right now. And so it comes from, it's a compound word. The first part, filiation, right, from filius, means uh, son. And so because we're siblings of Jesus, God's son, we're God's sons and daughters by adoption right now. And what that means for us, as I said a moment ago, is that we have to view Jesus as our older brother who's worthy of respect and honor. He's our exemplar in all things. He's our mediator with the Father. He's our discipliner and our caretaker. And he's our lead pastor. And he's our lead political candidate. 
Put more simply, our older brother Jesus should be at the center of our lives, affecting every single area of our lives. So listen to this. I started by pointing out that our nation is pretty rapidly declining with regards to Christianity. It's disheartening. But there's good news too. Many across the world are trusting Jesus as their Lord, but also their brother. There are, listen to this, across the world, 174,000 conversions every single day to Christianity. There are 3,500 churches planted across the globe every week. In the last 40 years in Indonesia, the number of Christians has grown from 1.3 million to 11 million. By 2042, it's anticipated that we'll have a translation of Scripture into every native language on the planet. Over 200 million people have seen the Jesus film, and it's been translated into more than a thousand languages. Sixty years ago, listen, this is, this is staggering, 60 years ago, there were zero churches in Nepal. And today, there's at least one church in all 75 districts of Nepal, praise God. In Iran, an average of 500 Muslims convert to Christianity daily. 70% of those are under the age 30, millennials. Every single day in Africa, nearly 20,000 people trust Christ and become Christians. In 1900, just 120 years ago, there were no churches in Korea. Today there are more than 1 million Christians and more than 7,000 churches in Seoul alone. Today, in China, there are between 10,000 to 25,000 converts every day and a total of 60 to 80 million Christians. Amen? There's lots of good happening. And the good news is reaching far and wide across the globe. Yes, there's some decline happening here in our neck of the woods. But what that means is that we all have to dig in and root ourselves in the faith deeper than we ever have in our lives. We have to commit like we never have in our lives. We have to commit, I'm going to study harder. We have to commit, I'm getting in a peer group. We have to commit, I'm going deeper with my family. We have to commit, I'm going deeper with my friends. I'm going deeper in personal study. I'm going to rise to the challenges. And we, we have to keep hoping, man, I hope pastor raises the bar this week. I want to grow. I'm ready to grow. I'm ready to be stretched. Let's become a thinking and learning church who takes what's learned but also puts it to work. Puts hands and feet and a mouth to it and become a church who puts our older brother at the center and honors him with our lives, follows his example, accepts his care, accepts his discipline, and looks to him as our lead pastor, not me, looks to him as our lead pastor, and looks to him as our chief political candidate. We're heading into an election season, as you all know. And it's already insanely heated. And I want to say this, I don't care who you vote for, 
as much as I care about how you treat those who vote differently than you. But even more, I'll go a bit farther and say this. I don't care if you vote for Biden for president. I don't care if you vote for Trump for president. I don't care if you opt out of voting or if you vote third party. I don't care. But I do care how you treat those who vote differently than you. That's most important. I was sitting at a four-way intersection in Kaneohe this week at a stoplight, and I looked across the way at the plethora of political signs. It was one I hadn't seen before, but it stuck out like a sore thumb. It didn't read vote for mayor or governor or anything else. I mean, as silly as it may sound, it said, vote Jesus. With your words and your deeds, vote Jesus. Brother Jesus for president. Brother Jesus for president in every single area of our lives. I know it sounds cliche. And I, resent, I tend to resent cliches. But Lord knows we need to hear it today. Vote Jesus. Amid all the chaos going on around here, amid all the sickness, the racism at whatever level, Many want to offer lots of different solutions, right? That's fine. They want to offer solutions. But as trite as it may sound, it's nevertheless true that the solution is Jesus. People want to come up with a million other solutions when the solution is right in front of everybody's face. It's Jesus. Trust Jesus. Vote Jesus. Live like Jesus. I want to encourage you this morning, let's join Brother Jesus' campaign and let's nurture his constituents into disciples who love God with their hands, hearts, and minds. I'm Michael Halcom, and I approve this message.